Welcome to the International Buzz Podcast brought to you by Wobi. I'm your co-host Tanya Falkner. And your co-host Robert Rogi. And today we'll be talking to Rafa Lombardino. She's been a translator for over 20 years, working with English, Spanish, Portuguese and Italian. And she's the CEO of Word Awareness, which is a network of professional translators that's based in California. And Rafa has also published a book back in 2014, which is called Tools and Technology in Translation. So welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. We're glad you're here. So you're talking about word awareness as a network of professional translators. My question is, how is that different from an LSP? Well, it's um, different because we don't work as an agency as far as we have this long database of uh, translators that we just see whoever's available, whoever can take the project and whoever charges last. We just know each other. We've been working together for a while. And it kind of started growing to a size that we can offer more languages than the ones that I cover because clients would ask, for example, you know, oh, you translate Spanish to Portuguese and Spanish to English, but they don't translate to Spanish. Couldn't you help me with that? So I started working with people that would offer the same services that I would. I always say that my Spanish translator is kind of my mirror image because she does English and Portuguese to Spanish, and we both have degrees in technology. And uh, we started just, you know, creating this network of people that just always work together and always on the same account. So it's not like um, an LSP that would be more business oriented. We're more language oriented that we have the same people working with the same languages. They are our go to people, experts in that field and language that our clients need. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Cool. Cool. So you're like a crew. Pretty much, yeah. So um, I only know a few of them personally, and it's usually because of the ATA conferences. And that's why it has like a personal touch, because I get to sit down with someone and talk to, you know, and also they have a legal background. They did translate from Portuguese into English, for example, uh, ATA certified. So after you establish that connection, if one day a client has that need, you know who to go to. So it's not like receiving resumes and just, you know, making kind of a blind choice based on, oh, this resume looks good and this person charges less, so I'll just go with that. No, it's just it's creating that personal connection and trusting people that, you know, are going to do the same kind of job that you would do if you have those skills. So uh, mine is more of technical marketing, business communication. So if I find someone that fits that profile, but for something that I can do myself, mm-hmm. I just start working with someone that will, you know, be an expert for that, for what a client needs. Mm-hmm. Cool. So how many are you now? Well, the core group would be actually people that also do the languages that I work with, but the opposite direction. So there are four of us that have been working together for a longer time. And it's one for Spanish, the one that I just mentioned, the one for Portuguese mm-hmm. for Portugal, because a lot of people also uh, say, you know, oh, what, how come we don't translate English into Portuguese for Portugal? Well, I'm from Brazil, so I cannot do that. It's completely different. It's not as simple as, you know, just running a spell check for the UK to change some things on a, an American translation. So um, I also developed a relationship with someone from Portugal that I actually got to meet when we travel over there in 2007. So that's how long we've been working together since uh, 2005, I believe. And then I got to meet her and it's like just a strong connection of how when a client needs something for Brazil and Portugal, we work together on that. And also my Italian translator, 
because I translate from Italian but not into Italian, my spelling would be horrible. <laughs> so I just go after someone that actually is an expert in that area, and she's been covering the English into Italian and some French into Italian translations. And then we have other people, like I just said, you know, there's one that is a legal expert. There's another one that is a very technical engineering expert for Brazil. So it's people that I meet at conferences and feel comfortable with them and know that they're professional. So we just have a group of maybe about 10 to 12, but the core group is four of us because it's the same languages that we work with all the time. It just depends on what direction the client needs. So I can cover one or my colleague in Portugal can cover the other one. So we've just been working together like that since 2004. Yeah. So what kind of customers prefer your more personal approach compared to the LSP approach? I think it's because they have a lot of repeating projects, so they need the continuity. So they know that when they come to us, they're going to have basically the same people working on that. There's a client that he has a lot of uh, business communication for Brazil, so he knows I'm always going to be the one working on it. And um, we develop a translation database and a glossary, so there's more consistency. So when the client is looking for that personal touch, they prefer going to us instead of just, I'm going to send this big project to an agency and they'll figure out what to do with it. So um, I think that's the difference that we offer because it's always going to be the same person working on that project, working on that account. And uh, once we know the client's business, the client's products and services, it's so much easier to just keep translating more documents from that client because we feel like we know what they're doing. We know what they're offering their clients so we can communicate that better when we're translating. That does definitely totally make sense. Well, cool. So I'd say let's jump on into the topic for today. And we actually want to talk about literature translation. And then if time allows it, we want to dive into technology for translators, but, you know, not like general more for what you need for literature translation and also other types of, of tools that translators could use apart from like the obvious, I mean, cat tools and so on. So what do you think makes literature translation different from other types? I think it's how you think about the audience, because when I'm translating business brochures or communications for company employees, you have that audience in mind that it's people that just, they're going to use that information and then go on with their work. So, okay, it's a training material that they have to comply with that training for the company, and then they can just move on and do their job. With literary translations, it's for pleasure. People are reading it, not just to get the information, but just because they want to, you know, escape from the routine, escape from their work to just go into, into this book, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, but they just want to appreciate the language, not just consume it and then put it aside. So I think it's about how you think about the audience, how you just kind of build the audience in your mind and what they expect from your work. I've heard some other translators saying that, oh, literary translation is uh, uh, more crafted and more important because sometimes people don't read commercial translation. I don't agree with that approach because all translations are important. That's why we are communicating to a group of people that don't, they are not able to read the original. And it's just how the information is going to be used. So something, you know, information is going to be consumed and left aside and a literary translation can stay with you as an audience. And uh, I just put myself in the 
reader's place. I'm also a reader. I really like, like reading books and I've been reading a lot of nonfiction lately. So I just want to give that experience to readers of the books I translate. Do you think, I guess you could say that like you have longer turnaround times or maybe it's not as time sensitive as some other types of translation. Do you think that that makes a difference in the outcome or in the quality of the translation that is not as time sensitive? Yes, the approach is different in that if I'm stuck on a commercial translation and I'm looking for the right word, I can just get up and make some coffee or start the laundry since I have a home office. I can just do something like that just to reset my brain, but I have to go back to it and finish it by a certain time. With literary translations, because it's just a longer project and you have usually a few weeks or months to get it done, what I like to do is just I go through it you know, once but I have, I can keep my notes and then I can think about it more when I come back to review it. As in commercial translation, sometimes you just go sentence by sentence and it's almost like the translation is already half done that I'm, you know, I don't have to worry as much. I don't have to keep thinking about it. Okay, that sentence is done. That sentence is done because of the informational nature of it. And then I just read everything together when it's done and okay, ready to go, send it off. And with the literary translation, I can just, you know, really slip on it and, okay, tomorrow maybe I'll come up with an answer that is going to make the sentence sound better. So you have more time to just think about it and craft it, if you will. But you can make the best option of how you're going to communicate the same feeling of the original, which is something you don't have to worry as much with commercial translations because they are informational. You're not going to think about, you know, how is this employee going to feel about it when he reads this training instruction because it's something mm -hmm. to the point. And when it's literary, if you just felt something when you were reading the original, how is the audience going to feel the same way when you're having them read your translation. So it's uh, the sensibility is a little different. So do you ever like have dreams about your literary translation? <laughs> all the time, all the time. And um, my nonfiction, uh, I mean, my fiction translations, they were mostly murders, zombies, because that's something that I enjoy doing. I enjoy reading that. So I started getting some books that were in that area. So of course, there was a time that I was known. It was a... Um, serial killer and then a zombie book it was two different books and of course i ended up dreaming about you know them all together in one dream so you do get you know uh, stuck in some of those things and uh, there are some other books more of psychological thrillers that have come back to me and i keep thinking i start fantasizing oh if this became a movie who would be the actress playing it so it's it's really fun to just keep you know existing in that place while you're working on a project like that But I would say with nonfiction, I've had some good nonfiction, for example, psychology for kids, psychologist from Brazil that works with kids. So there were a lot of tips that I try to use in my personal life with my kids. But there were also um, there was one about um, a Holocaust survivor from the Netherlands, and she ended up in Brazil and she wrote the book in Portuguese and she needed it translated into English. So that's something that definitely stayed with me. And still, I've been looking for more information about the Holocaust, World War II. So my commercial projects don't allow me to do that, of just keep going for more information, even though I don't have the project anymore. I just, I, I'm done with the project. I still feel this need to like educate myself more and more 
when I'm doing literary translations, even after the project is done, I still want to learn more and experience more about that subject. So that's a, a big difference between the two kind of projects. Do you work on multiple pieces simultaneously or do you think it's necessary that you just stick with one to like, keep that feeling and stay in that kind of mood? That's very personal because I know that my approach doesn't work for everybody. I have people that can only focus on one thing and have to do that and that's it. And I'm I'm the one of the kind of people that they need music or something in the background while they're working. It doesn't interfere with my translation. But I know that it's completely personal. So what I'm going to tell you is something that works for me, but I know that doesn't work for everybody. And I talk to my students all the time about that. And I always... I always ask, you know, do you listen to music when you're working? Or, oh, no, I need complete silence. So I completely understand that, but it would drive me crazy. <laughs> so the <laughs> same thing with me the, that I just need, I don't know, different parts of my brain working. I really enjoy switching gears in the middle of the day. So if I have, you know, two large projects going at the same time, let's say a book and then a marketing brochure, I like just working two hours in one, get up, do something else, come back and do the other project for another couple of hours, then go to the gym workout and then come back and, you know, I can actually resume things like that, switching gears because it makes me feel more comfortable. And uh, I can see that I'm making progress in both projects instead of just, you know, dedicating eight hours to one and then the next day, eight hours to the other one. I think that I'm just more productive if I keep switching gears like that. But mm -hmm. I know that it's highly personal. <laughs> Do you play a musical instrument just out of curiosity? No, I'm just, no, I can't play mm. anything. Um, no, my brother used to play the keyboards when he was a kid and it was great to just see him mm -hmm. playing and I never got to learn. He tried to teach me. Yeah. It's like, no. So I love singing <laughs> yeah. in the car, but that's how musical I get. That's right. And <laughs> no, I just asked, it's, <laughs> it's really great to take a break uh, and to play uh, an instrument uh, if you play one. You know, it's, if you work from home, it's like, yeah, okay, I need to refocus my mind a little bit. Okay, I'll take 10 mm. minutes and play a keyboard or... 10 minutes and play the guitar. It's kind of mm -hmm. a cool habit. Yeah, no, I just, I listen. I listen to it. I appreciate on that side, but I can't produce music. I'm sorry. <laughs> right, <laughs> I'm right. with you on that one. <laughs> so do you ever get like a relationship with the author of the work? Or like, do you have to communicate directly with the author often? Or did you ever build a lasting relationship with the author or friendship? I've had both experiences that I had, you know, kind of the standard project to go through a publisher or you go through an agent so you can submit questions and wait for the answers. I've had that experience, but I've also, because I've worked with self-published authors, I've also been able to have a very close business relationship with them that my questions go directly to them. And uh, I like leaving little comments when I delivered the file because sometimes I want to make sure that I understood it correctly. And it's I've read articles where even professors, when they're teaching literature, they talk about the author's intentions. And when you ask the author, the author is like, no, that was not my intention. I didn't even think about that. I just used the word because I liked it. But translators overthink things. And I like to just make sure that I'm getting the same ideas that the client, the author had when they were writing. So I do have that close relationship with them in that sense. I Some of the authors that I worked with are my friends on Facebook. So we do get to, you know, see each other online. And I translated these uh, three books by a husband and wife, and uh, they talk about parenting. 
and it's a bunch of short stories with their experience with their daughters. So I do see the girls growing up and then they see my kids. So it's nice to have that relationship. And it certainly helps, you know, when you're in the project to just have that visual, you know. So when I'm translating a short story about the guy talking about changing his daughter's diapers, I've seen pictures of the little girl and it's like, okay, so I can just build an image in my head. It's uh, it definitely benefits my work in the literary sense, not as much as commercial, but definitely. Does it need a lot of communication with either the author themselves or like the publishing company? Or are you usually not as much in touch with the people and you just deliver the result? It really depends on the kind of book. I enjoy just reading the book as I'm translating. I know that some people need to read the whole book before they sit down to translate the first word. I like being surprised as I'm translating because I think that that's how I can communicate the feeling that I get as a reader, you know, when I'm putting it out there as a translator for other people to get that same feeling. So I do enjoy exchanging messages and everything, but sometimes there are books that don't really need that. Uh, Some books are more straight to the point. I would say, you know, the Holocaust one because it's her memoirs. So it doesn't need to go through me necessarily as a reader to understand what's going on. It's something that we all have a collective information, collective uh, idea of what was World War II and the Holocaust. So it's just simply translating those feelings and have the sensibility to uh, get the message across. But it's something that, you know, takes research and not as much clarification from the author. But when you're doing a psychological thriller and you want to make sure that the author was just leaving these little trails through the book and you have to be careful, you know, to do the same thing and not to give anything away before, you know, the end of the book. So sometimes you have to work with them and just say, okay, so your intention was to do this. Okay, so I'm going to try to do the same thing in the translation. But it does, it just really depends on the book. Mm -hmm. So... Do you think it's common for self-published authors to translate their work or is there a difference between the approach between self-published authors and authors that publish with the company? Uh, Well, some authors, they decided that they want their book translated into English so they can get access to a bigger readership. So they make that their life project. So maybe they have another job, they publish their book in their original language. So now they want to, you know, have it in English and they have the financial means for that. They've been saving for that. Some other ones, they may have got a grant because their book uh, was self-published and got an award in their country. So some clients, some authors, they have, you know, this kind of purpose in life. And some others just want to, you know, see what happens. Oh, what if my book was available in English? Or would, you know, Brazilian readers get what I'm talking about as an American male writing thrillers or something? So it's funny to see which, uh, what authors have, you know, what in mind and just following what they want their book to accomplish. So that's what has been my experience with just, you know, Sometimes when I would uh, send a letter to uh, an American author saying, I'm a Brazilian translator, would you like to have your book translated into Portuguese? I did get some people like, no, Brazilians would never understand what I'm writing about. And I'm like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's, just, it's just seeing what the author's purposes are, which was funny because I, I remember there was this African-American author that I approached, a self-published author. And she was like, no, you can't translate my book because you're not African-American and Brazilians wouldn't understand. And I tried to explain to her, well, actually, I am 
part African. My great grandma was from Africa, uh, African descent. In Brazil, not in the United States, but you know, we do have that kind of common thing in common. And there are a lot of Africans in Brazil, and people just don't maybe they see like Giselle Beach and they think that everybody looks like her in Brazil, hmm. which is not true. But um, and there's a large African so, Brazilian population. Yes, it's yeah, huge. I think uh, I think we had one of the latest. Uh, Slaveries, you know, just it was one of the ones that ended the latest when compared to all the other countries that had slavery. So pretty mm. much like, you know, authors sometimes do have that because they just don't know the target market that they could be mm-hmm. tapping into. But on the other hand, there was a PhD student that went to Brazil, I think from Kansas, I don't remember. And she wanted to learn more about African heritage in Brazil. So that's what she was writing her thesis about. And then she hired me. She interviewed me. I talked about how, you know, I come from a very mixed family. And she was really happy to know that I would bring that background into her translations because Mm -hmm. she interviewed a lot of people speaking Portuguese and she needed it in English so she could write her thesis. Mm -hmm. So you just you have to deal with authors with whatever they're giving you. So some yeah. people are going to be very resistant and say, no, I am mm. not interested. It's not going to benefit me. And some other people are like, yeah, sure, let's try it. So yeah. um, that's interesting. negotiating. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The whole like <clears throat> cultural appropriation through translation concept is kind of weird. It's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. I don't, <laughs> I don't know what to think about it, actually. Hey, as you know, we like to keep things mostly non-commercial around here. And we like to just stick to interviewing the guests about fascinating subjects. But we would like to take a moment to mention a little bit about WordBee Translator. WordBee Translator is the translation management system developed by WordBee over the last 10 years. So we are celebrating 10 years now. It's all in one system, so you can manage projects. It also has linguistic tools. It has tools for finance, business analytics. And it's been around for 10 years, so it does pretty much anything you want. Before working for WordBee, I also used WordBee Translator. One of my favorite things about it was actually the invoicing because it made it really easy to manage supplier invoices, create them, and just not have to deal too much with the financial side of things. But other customers appreciate other things, like for example, it's a native cloud technology, so it's really collaborative. You know, you can keep track of what's going on in there at uh, any, any moment in your project. It's easy to set up different job assignment methods. You know, you can check your stats at any time. You can see how your project managers are performing. You can see how your translators are doing. And yeah, it does pretty much everything you want. It ends up fitting your organization like a glove, as we say. So that was just a word about Wordy Translator. Now, without further ado, back to the podcast. So let's tap a little bit into technology. Is there any specific tools or like tools specifically for literary translation? Not really, because I think that sensibility plays a bigger role. So it's just your ability as a translator and as a reader when you're working with literary translations. But of course, if you use technology, it would only help you do it faster or better. So um, I do use CAT tools when I'm translating books. People would say, oh, it's pointless because if you have commercial work that will have higher probability of actually having repetitions or matches, yeah, use a CAT tool. Literary translations don't do that. Well, yes, as a rule, they don't do it, but I still like the glossary function. So if an Mm -hmm. author used a word and I wanted to make sure that I remember that word and I don't have to go back through the pages, I just Mm -hmm. record that into my glossary. 
And there was one book that they had different narrators. So pretty much you have this chapter is being told by this point of view. The next chapter is going to be the other point of view. So when they go back to the same character as the narrator, there were some repetitions in that book. And I was like, instead of going through, you know, the pages where they were focusing on that character and trying to find out how I translated that sentence weeks ago, it was right there because I used the cat tool. So mm. the technology is not going to get in the way. Some people would say, oh, but all the sentences are separated. I like translating the entire paragraph. Yeah, you can still do that, especially when you're reviewing it, when you're rereading your translation and thinking more about the audience and how the audience will experience your translation. So technology is not going to get in the way. It will just help mm -hmm. you accomplish things faster and being consistent. So I don't think there's like one technology that all literary translators have to use. It's more of mm -hmm. how you use technology to your advantage. Right. Yeah, just having the side by side, you know, and being split into sentences might sound counterintuitive, but it enables the side by side, right? Because if you just put like two columns in a Word doc, eventually all the paragraphs are not going to line up anymore. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, I always struggle to imagine people working in Word docs, like translating the paragraph underneath the paragraph or something. And then I don't know what they do. Like, do they just delete the paragraph? the one above or do they leave it there and then check it later or two yeah, different I documents or that. <laughs> yeah yeah i don't know what how people do it but i can understand the complaint about cat tools too because they're boxy you know like uh, it looks like an excel spreadsheet almost i enjoy it it's just uh, i need structure so the fact that it's separated sentence by sentence i love it because i can mm -hmm. always see what sentences come before it i use swordfish and I'm not a side-by-side -side person, I'm a top-down person. So I like to see the top as the original sentence and I'm typing my translation on the bottom. And once right. I approve, it just goes up. So I can see like 15 or 20 sentences, the preceding sentences, and I can see the following sentences still in the original language. So it doesn't visually, it doesn't really affect me because I can still have continuity. But that's one thing that I always ask my students, you know, when I'm teaching, especially the introduction to swordfish class, you know, when you set up your screen, do you want to do the side by side or the top down? I always I'm curious about, you know, what make people choose different setups like that. But it does not hurt me at all. It, it, some people can feel constricted and it's too limiting. But mm. I feel that I'm more focused like that because when I open a document and I have to type, yeah, how mm -hmm. do you delete paragraphs? What if you delete two paragraphs and forget to translate one? Right. I get more anxious working like that. Yeah, it's like Yanny or Laurel. Did you see that Yanny Laurel <laughs> thing that was on the internet? Yeah, yeah. It's just like that because like I can't imagine translating over and under. I've done side by side and I'm like, oh gosh, this is great. But but that's true. There are all the tools support over and under still. Mm -hmm. And uh, I guess that's because probably half the world is using over and under. And I just thought everyone was on side by side. It's a, I don't know. I think it's a Yanny Laurel thing. <laughs> and sometimes it's even like your clients don't know what they want. They just want to get it done. So they may give you all the instructions because that's what they're used to doing. Maybe that's what they're used to doing with like marketing illegal inside the company. And then they want the translator to follow those rules. And you're like, hey, uh, what if I do it this way? Wouldn't it be easier for you? And they've never thought about it. Oh, really? I remember someone just sent me a PDF and they wanted me to add the translation as um, little comments. So oh, gosh. 
Yeah, I know. It's, it's a nightmare. It just There's uh-huh. a title, so I have to put a little comment right there, the little bubble, and then translate the title. And that would drive me crazy. And I'm like, yeah. okay, let's try something. So I just, I converted the PDF into doc. Of course, it's not pretty. I had to just, you know, make sure that it looked okay after the conversion. I translated using the CAD tool. I sent them back the translation, which already looked pretty much like the original as far as formatting. And they were like, oh, how did you do that? Mm-hmm. I kind of explained the process briefly. And I'm like, a wizard. <laughs> so, yeah, and I'm like, they, they think that it's a miracle. And I'm like, I do this every day. <laughs> so that's what I'm here for. I'm here for you. So yeah. sometimes clients get in the way with technology because they've been doing something a certain way and they think that that's what works. Another example is Excel because they want, you know, 10 languages done. So, okay, I'm going to do Brazilian. My friend is going to do Portuguese. My other friend's going to do Spanish, Italian. We have a French translator, a Dutch translator. Great. So we're going to have all the translations in there. And they use an Excel spreadsheet because, you know, it has a table so they can just use that. But they don't mm-hmm. understand how much of a nightmare translating in Excel is. And they don't think about the translator that way. So I told them, do you know that you can actually do the same thing in Word? You can just put, you know, the page on landscape instead of portrait, and then you can just create a table and all of Mm -hmm. us will type our translations or copy and paste from a cat tool, but we don't need to tell them and confuse them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But we just have, you know, this whole table with all the sentences. We can all switch our language when we're doing spell Mm -hmm. checking because Excel is not as effective with spell checking. So Mm -hmm. we try to show them, hey, let me use technology to my advantage to get the job done for you. So just Mm -hmm. because it doesn't make sense to you, it doesn't mean that we have to follow those instructions. I think I'm obligated to mention that (laughs) that in in WordBee, because, you know, WordBee is like a translation management system slash cat tool. You can do the multi-column Excel thing, which is kind of cool. So you can have like, uh, you know, 10 different languages, each one in its own column. And then when you set it up, you just tell WordBe which column is which, mm-hmm. and then it just goes, you know. So each translator only sees their part of the translation, but when you put the file together, it'll put them all back in the right spot, which is oh, kind of okay. cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty handy to. feature. <laughs> you can yeah, also... thinking about that way, I would think, okay, so if I have to, you know, translate my translation, my Brazilian version, and mm-hmm. then I have to assign the same document to all my other translators, I'll pretty much have to have so many copies. And then on their mm-hmm. copies, I'll have to mark yeah. all the other languages as untranslatable. So only the ones that are their language are accessible to them. So mm-hmm. it's a lot of problem solving and how, you know, technology mm-hmm. will help you that yeah, way. Right. Yeah. So like in Wordby, what you would do is you would, you would upload your Excel, right? And then you're going to assign the columns to the different languages or whatever. And then you would assign, so you have just the one file that you upload, and then you would assign the job for the person doing whichever language pair. So if you had 10 language pairs, you'd have your 10, you know, partners, and you'd assign one for each of them. And then they would translate it in the cloud. But then what's really cool is it has an option where you can actually, like, show in the editor multi-columns. So you'd have, like, the source but then you could have like target Portuguese, target Spanish, target French, target Italian. And, and you can actually scroll to the right and see what all the other people have translated in real time, which is sort of neat, kind of nifty. Mm, okay. So now I'm selling WordBe. Okay, <laughs> let's stop selling WordBe. Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. It's cool. So 
Is that often a problem? I mean, you mentioned that clients might not know what the best tools to use are, but once you like educate them and tell them this is what works better, do you often have problems with clients just really wanting you to do it their way and like not being open to anything else? It really depends on the kind of client. LSPs, they have their system and you upload the files to their to their system and they have already all the instructions, you know, of course you follow the instructions because they already have a system in place. But clients that just want to get it done and they think that they're, you know, helping you get it done their way, but they're not really language people. They're not running a language business. They're just, you know, they want their employees to have access to the same training worldwide. So what we do is we just show them there is a more effective way. If I do your way, it's going to take two days. If I do my way, it's going to take half an hour. So in the end, they just want, you know, this done effectively, correctly, so they can send the message to their clients, their employees or whatever. So those clients, that's when we're like, you know, instead of following your instructions, because it's going to take longer and be harder on me, can we do it this way? So you really have to, you know, that's why I tell my students, some clients who have instructions that are longer than the project you actually have to translate. But if you have to just see where the fine line is, some instructions are going to be very good for you to follow to get it accomplished. And some instructions are going to get in the way. So if you can offer them, you know, and I always tell my students, especially the ones taking the introduction to Swordfish, just give the information to clients as they need it. Some clients, the end clients, you know, they have a company, they just want their brochure translated. You don't have to explain to them what a CAD tool is. Don't complicate it because they don't care. They're not in the mm-hmm. translation business. They are in whatever business they are. And if you give them too much information, it's just information overload. And they're going to think that you're too complicated. They're going to move on to someone else who can, you know, just do the job and shut up. <laughs> so I always tell my students, just you provide the information if they ask. Translation agencies, of course, they know all that. So you can just say, you know, I use this and this cat tool and I do it this way and I do discounts. I don't do discounts. So you can just be more direct, but don't confuse the client, especially end clients and just, you know, get the job done the way that you feel comfortable, the way that's going to make them happy and everything's okay. (laughs) Hmm. Yeah, the dichotomy between the commercial and the literary translations is so so interesting, you know, because we're talking about this commercial stuff and working with clients mm-hmm. and and I'm picturing the literary like, I don't know, the stereotype of a literary translator in my mind is like sitting on a sofa with like designer everything. And there's some like house plants over there and there's some like music in the background and and they are translating like very peacefully and like <laughs> maybe smoking a cigarette and drinking some tea or something. I don't know. Like, uh, <laughs> and then the commercial jobs, they sound so different. You know, there's, uh, what's more challenging? Um, I think the, the biggest challenge is meeting deadlines and just uh-huh. balancing, balancing your work and your regular life. Like I said, I have two kids, they're, you know, in a lot of activities. So it's just making sure that I get my work done and pay the bills by the end of the month. And that's the most challenging part of being a translator. As far as doing the work itself, you just sit down and you deal with each project as they come to you. Of course, translating the same kind of materials, the same, even if it's from different clients, you just create kind of a system, you know how to navigate it through it. But I don't see like, you know, literary or commercial as more challenging. I work the Mm -hmm. same way. I don't, you know, 
put nice clothes and sit at a cafe and translate books. <laughs> I am, mm-hmm. I'm, you know, wearing the same clothes and, you know, I'm doing the same things. I'm in the same home office, whether I'm doing one or the other. The one thing mm-hmm. that is different, though, and I remember writing an article back then when I started with the literary translations is that for commercial translations, instructional, I just sit down, type, 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 done. Okay, great. With literary translations, sometimes when the character is moving a certain way or doing some hand gesture or something, sometimes I just start doing it to try to find the word because as translators, sometimes we think in two languages and the words don't necessarily come to you in the other language. So you have to really think hard about that. It's like, how would my parents or my friends in Brazil say that? So uh, sometimes I have to just make the gestures and, you know, my son would walk past my home office like, what are you doing? Why are you waving your arms? And I'm, I'm just trying to do what the character is doing so I can find the word for that. So that's the only thing that I think I get more, I don't know, physical if I'm doing literary translation to just show what the character is doing. I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't eaten any brains translating <laughs> zombie stories, but you do have to kind of, you know, do something different like that. With the commercial, it's like, you know, Type in your name and press enter and save your password. It's just more instructional that I can almost like shut off my brain and I can keep typing because it's something that is more mechanical than a literary translation. Do you think it's tougher to keep deadlines for the literary translation or commercial? I mean, commercial is definitely shorter, but I mean, you also probably it's might be more work, the literary translation. So which one's harder to keep? Because I do this sort of multitasking and I work on both projects at the same time and I like taking a break. Okay, so done with the commercial, I'll do some literary and then I'll go back to the commercial. I think that managing the deadlines are not, it's not that hard. After 21 years, yeah, I just know how to schedule myself and everything. I do live by my Google calendar for sure. (laughs) If Google calendar is ever down, I don't know what I do with my life. I have no (laughs) idea what my appointments are, what my deadlines are. But I don't see them differently. I do know that some people could be procrastinators. So they're like, oh, I have this literary translation. So I'll just work, you know, on that later. Or they feel like they need, you know, eight hours to just get something accomplished and make progress on this huge project. And I don't see them differently because I work two hours here, two hours there. You know, I take breaks often and I just can manage that more easily that way. So we mentioned CAT tools now and the tools you really use for the translation. But what about other tools? I mean, you've written this book, which was all about tools for translation. And how has it changed since then? And what are the other tools are there that you would recommend a translator to use? So, yes, I made a decision to just structure the class even before I was thinking about writing a book. I did it in a way that you wouldn't be very dependable on the technology because it's more about explaining what technologies are there and what they can do for you and how you can use them, but not being specific about, you know, use this tool for this, use that tool for that, because they sometimes disappear or they merge with another one. They change their name. So I didn't want to have to update my class or my book every six months. So I keep things general and then I have kind of handouts or I have, you know, the um, appendix part of the book that I can update that part. So it's more about how translators deal with technology and how students can get the concept or readers of the book can get that concept. And then tools are going to change here and there. For example, when I first started putting the class together in 2009 and I started teaching it in 2010, 
we didn't really have online cat tools like we do right now, the web-based cat tools. It was something that I was even running into that problem with word awareness because if I'm working on the translation with my Portuguese from Portugal translator, we could share the same translation and adapt them accordingly, but I would have to sender the translation memory or sender the bilingual file and exchange that. So nowadays it's a lot easier that we can access the same translation memory and update it as we work. So that's one thing that's, I think, the main difference that I can see from back in 2010 to right now when we're getting so close to like 10 years later, you know, how the technology changed. It's uh, web-based cat tools because we didn't really have, uh, if there was one back then, it wasn't really popular and it was still like in its early stages. And now they're Mm -hmm. just so much more advanced and so much easier to work, so much more intuitive So it's the main difference. Mm -hmm. At the student level, I would say that my very first classes back in 2010, I had a lot of problems with zip files. My students just didn't understand the concept, maybe because they never used it in their personal life and they were starting as translators. So they never had to attach 100 files to an email in an efficient way. So they didn't know what zip files were. They were really, you know, confused. So I was having problems every time we would get to that week that they had to zip the files to deliver their homework. I would always have like half the class running through problems and just, you know, trying to do it again. And it doesn't work. I can't unzip your file. Do it again. Or they would unzip, they would zip each file individually and then zip them all together. So I have to unzip all of them until I can actually get to their work. (laughs) So that's one thing that I've noticed from students that they really struggled almost 10 years ago with zip files. And now maybe there's like one every quarter that had an issue, but was able to correct it. So I don't know if zips got more popular, but definitely I haven't been having that problem correcting homework as far as zip files Mm. now, which I'm really bad. (laughs) Maybe it got more user friendly to zip stuff. I don't know. That's interesting. I mean, I've been zipping stuff since I was like eight years old or something, I don't know. Exactly, <laughs> like, yeah. It just seems pretty pretty normal. But uh, that's one thing I have to think about because I'm a technology person, and how can I break it down? Because I do this every day, but it may be completely new to someone. So yeah, right, I've been right. files since I don't know when, but it's something that is completely new concept. So how can I break it down to just make sure that they understand? And just uh, really not taking it for granted just because I'm used to this and I've been doing this. You know, I started my it would be equivalent to an associate's degree in data processing back in 95. And it's like a lot of things have changed. I kept it up with it. But then some people that are going to take a technology class today, they were never introduced to that. Maybe they were, you know, a lot younger than I am and they didn't have computers or computers were already part of their life and didn't have to learn it as I did when I was 15. So you just you have to have that, you know, kind of flexibility to see technology through your students' eyes and make mm-hmm. sure that you can give them access to that and not take it for granted. Like, oh, you should know this. No, right. maybe they don't. They never needed it. So, What are students especially good at? Like, I'm sure that being younger and having energy must help them do certain things better or no. Yeah, and that's the thing. I have students from all – it's like – Geographically and age-wise, I have students that are going to university to get their English 
major degree and then they're also doing the translation program on the side and I have students who are maybe much older than I am whose kids are off to college and they're like I'm bilingual I would like to be an interpreter or translator so now that you know I have an empty nest I'll just invest in myself so I have students from you know both ends of the spectrum and of course the younger ones because they grew up with technology they didn't have to learn it they have it easier they can do more things technologically than the older students that maybe they never needed it because they were a stay-at-home mom or they were just working a different job and they never needed to use computers that way. So I see everything and uh, I, I think that all of them are good at maybe doing research because that's something that we always do. Even if you're not doing research professionally, you know where to go to look for information. And uh, yes, I remember when Google didn't exist. So it's like, you know, nowadays everybody uses Google. So I know that my students can actually research things way better than when I was first starting as a translator because we didn't have the means to do that. You know, you could get the encyclopedia, you could go to the library, you Mm -hmm. know, you could maybe send an email to someone that you know that could get you an answer. But, you know, that email could, you know, take 10 days to be replied to because people didn't check their emails that often in the 90s. So it's like, you know, now they have the internet speed. They know how to use that because they use it in their personal lives as well. So, Well, I'm, I'm glad that I don't have to do Dewey Decimal System anymore. That's all I was going to say. <laughs> like, Dewey, Tanya's like, what's the Dewey Decimal System? It's like the, the, I'm actually still shocked. You said Google did not always exist. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Thanks for reminding that I'm probably like 20 years older than you. <laughs> No, but yeah, I remember when Google first, I remember a friend, I was in college and this friend said, you know, I was looking for images on Alta Vista for our uh, online newspaper. And then my friend was like, hey, have you heard this thing about Google? They have like an image search too. And I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. So we sat down, we were researching it and I'm like, oh, thanks. I'm going to start using it. Maybe we'll catch on. And uh, yeah, it's been uh, almost 20 years. I don't know how old Google is, but I started using it in 2001 when I was in college. Mm-hmm. 2000, 2001. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think we're about the same age. I was also doing that. It was something. Yeah. The first time you use Google, it was like, uh, yeah. whoa, this is really better. Like it was noticeably better. Yep. I mean, I remember, you know, Alta Vista and I remember GeoCities. And I remember just, you know, use front page to create websites. That's how mm-hmm. our news, online newspaper used to be. So you can't really just post it and then it's available to everybody. I would have to take the little disc, the mm-hmm. floppy disk, down to the university room where they had someone to update all the websites. So it's like, yeah, and things are just so much easier, so much faster now that you just, you know, you work on what you want to communicate, press a button, and it's out there in the world. So, yeah, I remember when Google didn't exist in a... Facebook, Twitter, so, and it's been just fun to just see how technology has been evolving and how my students now don't have to think about things that I had to think about when I was trying to adapt to those things and using my work because I was already translating back in college. So definitely working has become a lot easier for me from 97 to 2018 as a translator. Did you ever hear about Microsoft Bob? We're going off track here, but that's fine. It's called <laughs> Microsoft Bob. No. It, oh, wow. It's really worth checking out. It's from the mid-90s, I think, mid-90s, like Windows 95-ish time. 
and oh. it was like this little game dude and he was in this like room with a table and a library and all these different things but it was actually like the operating system except that it was like you were in this room so if you wanted to write a word document you had to like click on the book on the table if you wanted to save oh. something you had to <laughs> click on the library it was like <laughs> it's really funny You've there's never a heard youtube of it, but video it's fascinating yeah, yeah, it is fascinating because I'm sure it'll be something like that again when with virtual reality or whatever. But um, but it's exactly what it looks like. My son working on his school iPad that they have all these games that, you know, they're learning things and they're accomplishing their tasks, but it looks all like a game. So it's interesting. Right. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. It's cool. It's worth checking out. <laughs> well, that was a nugget for the listeners. A little golden nugget of retro coolness. <laughs> well, I think let's put one more final question, which would be, what is your prediction for the technology? I mean, now you said it's all cloud and everything, but what do you think is going to happen in the next, I don't know, decades? Oh, my gosh. I'm not the best person for that because I did go to school. I did do programming and I left it aside because I'm just not good at it. I'm an expert user. I'm, you know, good at being a user and reacting and learning how to use that tool to my advantage. But when it comes to predictions, it's just, I'm horrible. <laughs> I have no idea, but it's just, I think that, you know, having more of what we already have, but just perfecting it. Like I said, you know, how cat tools, you'd have to, Travis had the dongle that he had to install on your computer to make sure that it was not a pirate copy and all that. And look where we are now that we can use cat tools online web-based. Mm -hmm. So you just need to have it you know, open the browser, have internet, and then you can use a CAD tool. So there's not hardware involved. It's more the software and how you use it. So I just hope that more things start to appear like that, that is just going to make it easier. So we can keep using the same system, the same method that we're comfortable with, but things that would just make us more efficient, faster, and improve quality and improve consistency. So I'm horrible at like, you know, predicting things. I don't know. I watch a lot of sci-fi movies, but maybe some kind of a minority report kind of thing that I can translate with my mind. I don't know, but I don't think that's going to happen in my lifetime. Definitely not in 10 years, but I do like just reacting to technology and figuring out how to incorporate it into my life. If anyone, you know, back in 97, when I started translating, if anyone would say that, well, first that I would have kids one day. And then my kids would just walk around this tablet and then my daughter's just getting information from YouTube. Oh, did you know that earthquakes happen like that? If anyone told me back in 95, 97, that that's what technology would be like, I would like, okay, that's just a sci-fi movie. So I'm just glad that, you know, we have an easier time compared to how the 90s was for translators and how much paper we had to waste back then. So I'm just glad that we keep evolving to making things easier and faster and more accurate. So just let's keep it up that way. Mm -hmm. Sounds great. And I'm actually so curious. And I mean, I guess everyone kind of is. It's just been evolving so fast and it's not going to slow down, I think. So let's see where it goes. Oh, yeah. Just keep inventing and I'll keep using it. <laughs> yeah. Maybe the future will be something that uh, like where the camera like records the hand gestures you're making while translating books 
to get into the character and it will like help exactly. you to choose the right word or something. <laughs> oh, and just one, one little uh, note here. For example, I'm not a smoker, so I could not remember the word for ashtray one time. And I didn't have any smokers around me. And I'm like, I can see the ashtray in my head, but I cannot remember the word in English or in Portuguese. How am I going to translate it? It's like, you know, I don't even remember what I was translating, but it's like, I knew it was an ashtray and I knew that what it's for. And I can't even Google it because I couldn't remember the words in either of my languages. And I'm like, I don't know what to do. I and then that. I had to okay, <laughs> walk away from it, go do something else. I think my son was little at the time. So it's like, no, go check his diaper, go bathe him or something. And then later on, I was like, wait a second. I remember the word in Spanish for some reason, which is my third language. And I'm not fluent as I am in English in that. And mm. then I just went, started Googling, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that's it. It's an ashtray. It's a cinzero in Portuguese. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. So if we had technology for that, to knowing what I'm thinking, <laughs> that would be perfect. Because we can do picture image, which is great. You know, so if you have an image and, you know, you type ashtray and you get that picture, you can put it on Google. And then you search, you know, google.com.br for Brazil. So you can kind of, like, get pictures that will tell you what that is in that language. But if only we could have technology to like, you know, I have this image in my head. How do you call it in the languages that I need? That would be perfect. Mm -hmm. Wait for it. It's coming, I'm sure. Yes. Uh, inventors get right yep, to it. Word, word B will have that in 2019. Actually, you know, you can al already do something like kind of close with Pinterest. You can scan images. Like if you had an ashtray and you can take a picture and scan it, it would show you other pictures of ashtrays. And I guess that way you could figure out the word finally because it will tell you what it is. So it might be worth giving it a try if it happens again. <laughs> yeah, my main problem with this example is that I'm not a smoker. I don't have an ashtray in the house and I didn't have any smokers around me. So it's like, that's why that I is, got stuck That is that. a problem. <laughs> uh, yeah, another day that I got stuck was um, Brussels sprouts and I couldn't remember in Portuguese and I wasn't finding anything. But I had a friend that was, I saw that she was online and I'm like, how do you call this? I just sent her the picture and she's like, oh, it's Covid de Bruxelles. And I'm like, oh, okay, thanks. So it's like, mm -hmm. not a translator, but I saw that she was online and all that she likes to cook. And I'm like, oh, thanks for saving my life because I was going to just you know, have to type and look for dictionaries. It was mm -hmm. faster that way because she was right there. Mm -hmm. Does that mean you're not eating Brussels sprouts? <laughs> oh, I love them. It's just, ah, okay. no, I love them. I actually, I like meal prepping. So uh, I think it was uh, two weeks ago. That was my whole week was Brussels sprouts with chicken and rice. So I love them. But sometimes I'm not, you know, 17 anymore. That's when I started translating professionally. So mm. the words will disappear. And I do think that after you have kids, you kill some of your brain cells. So it's <laughs> harder to have access to that quick memory. So uh, yeah, it's research. Your research skills will definitely save you in that department. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's a good note to end the podcast, except if any of you has anything to add. No, I'm, I think it's a good note to end on, too. Cool. Well, then that was another episode of the International Bus Podcast, this time with Rafael Lombardino. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, Rafael. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. Thanks. Bye.